and you'll be Chancellor and Liz Truss will be Prime Minister this time next month. Absolutely, 100%. I'm not going anywhere. Oops. That was Kwasi Kwarteng yesterday in Washington. He is now out of a job. And the question now on everyone's lips, is Liz Truss going to follow him? How secure is she in her job as Prime Minister? I'm joined on what is a remarkable day in British politics by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm very good, Michael. Very happy to be joining you. It's an exciting day. It's going to be an exciting show. How long do you give Liz Truss? Will she last longer than it takes for a lettuce to go mouldy? That is another question um, on the lips of the nation. I think the Daily Star are putting a live feed showing a lettuce. So we're going to see that go mouldy live over the next seven days. That's apparently how long they last. And we've got to see if Liz Truss lasts any longer. It was at around midday today that we had confirmation that Kwasi Kwarteng had been fired as Britain's Chancellor. And it was then left to Liz Truss to perform the mother of all U-turns in a high-profile Downing Street address. The speech was only four minutes long. We'll take you through it. Good afternoon. My conviction that this country needs to go for growth is rooted in my personal experience. I know what it's like to grow up somewhere that isn't feeling the benefits of growth. I saw what that meant, and I'm not prepared to accept that for our country. I want a country where people can get good jobs, new businesses can set up, and families can afford an even better life. That's why, from day one, I've been ambitious for growth. Since the 2008 financial crisis, the potential of this great country has been held back by persistently weak growth. That clearly wasn't the most important part of her speech. We will get onto that. The reason I wanted to stop there is because I do just find it endlessly hilarious that Liz Truss's origin story for her whole political project, her purpose in life, is how terrible, you know, because she's learned how terrible the economy was in the 1980s and how terrible it was in the 2010s and she wants to change it. If what shaped your politics is thinking that the economy sucked in the 1980s and in the 2010s, you don't need a new chancellor. You need to start voting Labour. They are the last two decades where the whole of the, the whole 10 years we had Tories in government. Completely, completely bizarre. As I said, though, the meat of the speech is coming up. Let's go back to that. I want to deliver a low-tax, high-wage, high-growth economy. It's what I was elected by my party to do. That mission remains. People across this country rightly want stability. That's why we acted to support businesses and households with their energy costs this winter. It's also the case that global economic conditions are worsening due to the continuation of Putin's appalling war in Ukraine. And on top of this, debt was amassed helping people through the COVID pandemic. But it is clear that parts of our mini budget went further and faster than markets were expecting. So the way we are delivering our mission right now has to change. We need to act now to reassure the markets of our fiscal discipline. I have therefore decided to keep the increase in corporation tax that was planned by the previous government. This will raise £18 billion per year. It will act as a down payment on our full medium-term fiscal plan, which will be accompanied by a forecast from the independent OBR. Now, by yesterday lunchtime, before that speech, people had been suspecting that U-turn was coming. But it, it cannot be overstated just how humiliating 
It was. Liz Truss's entire leadership campaign, her campaign to become Tory leader, was based on opposition to Rishi Sunak's tax rises. That was her raison d'etre. The reason people should elect Liz Truss, leader of the Conservative Party, is because Rishi Sunak was making Britain into a high-tax economy and he was going to push it into a recession. Liz Truss was going to do something different. Now, she's been forced to accept that the biggest one of his tax rises has to go ahead. We will do whatever is necessary to ensure debt is falling as a share of the economy in the medium term. We will control the size of the state to ensure that taxpayers' money is always well spent. Our public sector will become more efficient to deliver world-class services for the British people. And spending will grow less rapidly than previously planned. And that was potentially the most important part of the speech. The U-turn on corporation tax and the top rate of income tax still leaves £20 billion of unfunded tax cuts. And as you heard there, Trust wants to fund that with Austerity 2.0. Now, I'm going to stop interrupting this historic speech from Liz Trust. You can watch the rest of it now. I met the former Chancellor earlier today. I was incredibly sorry to lose him. He is a great friend and he shares my vision to set this country on the path to growth. Today, I have asked Jeremy Hunt to become the new Chancellor. He's one of the most experienced and widely respected government ministers and parliamentarians, and he shares my convictions and ambitions for our country. He will deliver the medium-term fiscal plan at the end of this month. He will see through the support we are providing to help families and businesses, including our energy price guarantee that's protecting people from higher energy bills this winter. And he will drive our mission to go for growth, including taking forward the supply side reforms that our country needs. We owe it to the next generation to improve our economic performance, to deliver higher wages, new jobs, and better public services, and to ease the burden of debt. I have acted decisively today because my priority is ensuring our country's economic stability. As Prime Minister, I will always act in the national interest. This is always my first consideration. I want to be honest, this is difficult, but we will get through this storm and we will deliver the strong and sustained growth that can transform the prosperity of our country for generations to come. Is there anyone in Britain who believes that acting in the national interest is what really motivates Liz Truss? Now, she promised all of these, you know, the reason we have this market chaos is not because of anything quasi Quateng pushed on this government. It's because Liz Truss, in her leadership campaign, explicitly promised that all of these tax cuts would go ahead. Now, she's had to U-turn on that. She's blaming her chancellor, throwing him under the bus. But it made her prime minister... No, she probably doesn't regret, you know, promising all of those tax cuts because that's how she became prime minister. And now she's going to, you know, hope to hang on even after sending everyone's mortgage rates rising. Now, you have now seen the whole of Liz Truss's four-minute speech. It was followed by four minutes of questions and answers. We'll go to those in one moment. First, though, Aaron, I want your um, take on, on that speech. I mean, how humiliating was it? I mean, watching it, it was quite something. It was pretty impressive and pretty extraordinary. I mean, we'll talk about this over the course of the show, Michael. I, I don't know if this is the end of it, personally. Because, of course, when somebody is so richly humiliated in public, you think, well, this is, this is the low point. This is the nadir. I don't think it is. Because, actually, the rowback they made today wasn't that big. 
And I think there was almost a show of eating humble pie and the sacking of Kwasi Kwarteng and will he, won't he overnight? And then this morning, and then he goes. And that's the media spectacle. But actually, you look at substantively what's changed in regards to the mini budget, and we still have extraordinarily high unfunded tax cuts. So yes, it was humiliating for Liz Trust, but I think that's part of the ploy here is maximal humiliation. Keep on saying U-turn, even though substantively the U-turn isn't that big. We've still got the tax cuts in regard to national insurance contributions and in regard to the, the basic rate. So of those 45 billion pounds worth of uh, tax cuts, you've still got about half of them. I personally don't think that in the medium term, that will be enough to pacify the markets. I may be wrong. Let's see. You know, we wouldn't normally celebrate the markets disciplining. I mean, she was, was she a democratically elected prime minister? Not by the public, but, you know, the constitutional way that our system works. You know, she is the prime minister of democratic system and her policy now seems to be being dictated by international markets. That's not a good thing. But I suppose we've been willing to tolerate it while their issues have been with tax cuts you know, completely bizarre policies to benefit the rich, which would also increase inflation and so be difficult for the rest of us. It seems now we might be moving into a situation where what the markets want, you know, she's, she's dumped half of her tax cuts now from that speech you heard. It seems like we're about to get £20 billion of public spending cuts. Now that would be disastrous. It would be awful. There is some discussion that it's going to be hard for her to get that through Parliament but then again, I mean, do we really have that much confidence that Conservative backbench MPs are not going to allow £20 billion in spending cuts to go through? I mean, they've done worse in recent memory, haven't they? So I don't have too much faith that they're going to stand in the way of the decimation of public services in defence of the rest of Liz Truss's tax cuts and to please the markets, especially with Jeremy Hunt, who's very much an establishment figure in post. We'll talk about him more later. Now, though, let's go to the question answers session. Liz Truss controversially only took four questions. And as I say, the whole thing lasted just four minutes. We're going to show you the whole thing. Can you explain to the public why you think you should remain as prime minister, given you've jumped a key tax cut that led you to be elected and got rid of your chancellor? I'm absolutely determined to see through what I have promised, to deliver a higher growth more prosperous United Kingdom to see us through the storm we face. We've already delivered the energy price guarantee, making sure people aren't facing huge bills this winter. But it was right in the face of the issues that we had that I acted decisively to ensure that we have economic stability, because that is vitally important to people and businesses right across our country. Uh, Harry Cole. Thank you, Prime Minister Harry Cole from the Sun. You were the one that wanted to cut the 45p rate. You stood on a platform to win the leadership of the Conservative Party on a platform to cut corporation tax. You and the Chancellor, the ex-Chancellor, designed this budget together in lockstep, we're told. At times in secret, the two of you. He has to go because of the fallout from it. How come you get to stay? Well, my priority is making sure we deliver the economic stability that our country needs. That's why I had to take the difficult decisions I've taken today. The mission remains the same. We do need to raise our country's economic growth levels. We do need to deliver for people across the country. We're committed to delivering on the energy price guarantee. 
which people are already seeing in their bills. But ultimately, we also need to make sure that we have economic stability. And I have to act in the national interest as Prime Minister. Um, Chris Mason, BBC. Excuse the bluntness, Prime Minister, but given everything that has happened, what credibility do you have to continue governing? What I've done today is made sure that we have economic stability in this country. Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor is somebody who shares my desire for a high growth, low tax economy. But we recognise because of current market issues, we have to deliver the mission in a different way. And that's what we are absolutely committed to do, achieving that stability at what is a very difficult time globally. Uh, Robert Peston. Prime Minister, the uh, former Tory Chancellor, Philip Hammond, has just said that you have totally trashed the Tory party's election-winning reputation for economic competence. Will you apologise to your party? Well, I am determined to deliver on what I set out when I campaigned to be party leader. We need to have a high growth economy, but we have to recognise that we are facing very difficult issues as a country. And it was right in the national interest that I made the decisions I've made today to restore that economic stability so we can deliver, first of all, helping people through this winter and next winter with their energy bills, but also making sure that our country is on the long-term footing for sustainable economic growth. Thank you very much, everybody. That was Liz Truss delivering a speech and answers which were supposed to inspire confidence in her government. I don't think it worked. And that performance didn't do much um, to restore confidence among her MPs. Pippa Karar from The Guardian tweeted this. Tory MPs already texting to say they think that Liz Truss's press conference has actually made things worse and the market reaction wasn't much better. And so the yield on government bonds, that's the interest investors demand when they lend money to the government. That fell last night with news of an expected policy U-turn. So it's good news if it falls. Um, but when Quateng was sacked and Liz Truss gave that speech, they rose again. In terms of sterling, so we always hear about the pound, the FT report, and this is a quote, the pound fell slightly as Truss spoke. So even, even as she was delivering that confidence-inspiring address, the pound was falling. Aaron, it wasn't an easy speech for anyone to give. I think it had low expectations, but I think even though she, she didn't meet, and I suppose one thing also I want to mention, you sort of said, what they've got to do at this point is put her out and humiliate her. What lots of people have been saying is what you're supposed to do as a prime minister if you're in an awkward situation is you stand there and let the journalists throw everything at you. You know, you say, I can take this. But the fact that she was only there for four minutes has got people thinking that she is, you know, she's, she's not willing to, to absorb all the flack and show that she can sort of deflect things in the way that sort of Boris Johnson could. What do you make of that? You know, I think it was um, Krishna Guramathi from Channel 4, I could be wrong, who said, aren't you going to say sorry? And I just think... 
Like, who cares if she says sorry? I just find this so pathetic. And also, you're a journalist. You're like, I don't know. I find it really pathetic, Michael. I find it really, really pathetic. Nobody cares if she says sorry. They don't want their mortgages to go up. They would like inflation to be dealt with, and they want interest rates to stay low, and they don't want their pension funds to collapse. So, will you say sorry? It really just annoys me. Nobody cares about this trust. Nobody cares about the drama. They just don't want their personal lives to be screwed up. I would also say that the emphasis on her performance, well, that didn't calm the markets. No, the markets are worried because the fundamentals haven't actually changed that much. We had 48 to 50 billion pounds worth of uncosted tax cuts. This wasn't a budget, and yet we had the biggest tax giveaway in 50 years. And it wasn't even a budget. I mean, the further away we get from the events of the mini-budget, the more insane they look. 50 billion pounds worth of tax cuts. More than any budget, budget, this wasn't even a budget, under Margaret Thatcher. And she did it within weeks of coming in to 10 Downing Street without a general election. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. But the big thing is, Michael, that yes, there were four big tax cuts in there. Higher rate, which was only, by the way, that was only going to cost the exchequer about £2 billion. They got obviously rid of the highest rate of tax. Uh, reducing the uh, the basic rate from 20p to 19p. That's still there. I think that costs about 16 billion. Corporation tax cuts, they've, they've gotten rid of those. They're now going to go up to 25%, presently at uh, 19%, I think. You're on top of that better than I am. That's not going to happen now. So they are going to go up to 25%. But the national insurance tax cuts are also staying. So two of those four tax cuts are staying. The national insurance contribution tax cut, I think, again, is about 15, 16 billion. So you are looking at, like I say, a package which was Completely unfunded, completely unfunded. I think even through to 26, 27, as in 2026, 2027, you know, five years time, four or five years time, just these tax cuts, I think basically you'd be looking at Britain running a deficit of like four or five percent. And obviously that's on top of a public debt, which is, is already quite sizable. Not that these things matter because the one thing the Tories say, which is true, we have a lower public debt than, you know, almost anyone else in the G7, even the G20. What, 19, 95% depends who you ask, what day, but we're certainly not Japan or Italy or, or France. So, or the USA. So, the, yeah, the, that's true. The national debt isn't that big a thing. But this idea that within three weeks, you do the biggest tax cuts a country has seen in 50 years, having not won a general election, I think most people go, the people running that country aren't quite sensible or even politically sane. We should probably get out. Looking at the big fundamentals, which are affecting every country worldwide over the next 6, 12, 18 months, high interest rates, global recession slash depression, political volatility. People are going to get very upset in many, many, many countries, global north and south. If you've got people like that running the UK, probably best not to, to be holding pounds, probably not best to be holding government debt, uh, probably not best to be doing lots of things, certainly foreign direct investment, whatnot. Why bother? These people aren't, aren't serious people. So I think that is why the markets weren't particularly persuaded by the events of the last, what, 12 hours? Yeah, the sacking of Kwarteng, the speech, the U-turns. I don't think it's because trust isn't a, a credible operator or trust is useless. Oh my God, her Q&A, that certainly doesn't help. Why the markets haven't changed that much is actually they haven't really done a full U-turn. When they said they were going to go back on the mini budget, Michael, I genuinely thought, and I thought they were going to have to do that. That was obvious about a week ago. I thought that would entail, of these four tax cuts, all of them being rolled back. They've only gone back on two. And so I do actually think this problem could reemerge again in, in two, three, four weeks. I do. Because actually, they've not acted decisively enough to calm market sentiment. And when you get the animal spirits in the market, and you get volatility and uncertainty, the one thing you have to do is be decisive. That idea of shock and awe with regards to 
you know, market failure after 2008, massive intervention to calm things down. Or like with the Bank of England very recently in regards to saving uh, pension funds in this country, who were really exposed to what was going on with British gilts. Massive intervention, calm things down. The big bazooka, as it was called in 2008. I think when you've only reversed two of four highly controversial tax cuts, which are unfunded, I think this story isn't going away. We're going to talk about Keir Starmer asking for a general election one moment. Before we do, though, I want to talk about what I think is quite a fundamental issue. I saw, I think, Jeremy Gilbert tweeted today that we're seeing two things today, which is one, the end of neoliberalism as a guiding project of sort of political policymaking, but at the same time, confirmation that the markets, you know, this sort of unstrap concept of, of international investors, they really can force government policy in a very dramatic way. Like, obviously, this was incredibly politically costly for Liz Truss to do. Clearly, Kuateng didn't want to make this U-turn because as soon as he made this U-turn, his career was over. But they had no choice. And the markets gave them no choice. And in a way, actually, the Bank of England also gave them no choice because I think this sequence of events essentially stems from Andrew Bailey saying, we're not going to continue covering your back. We're not going to continue propping up the guilt market. There's going to have to be a political U-turn. And the combination of the Bank of England and international investors have essentially determined what government policy looks like. And as I say, I mean, I think it was stupid to give unfunded tax cuts to the wealthy. But at the same time, should we be entirely comfortable by the, the mechanism which forced this change? I think absolutely. The idea that you've got, you know, progressives going, oh, yeah, the bond markets, oh, the IMF, obviously ridiculous, right? Absurd. And you could foresee a situation like you have with President Mitterrand in France in the early 1980s. That was the last time a, a European government got monstered by the markets when they tried to pursue a certain policy direction. The difference is, Michael, A, Mitterrand was elected. He had democratic legitimacy behind his program, his agenda. He had buy-in from a bunch of other political parties, not just his own socialist party. With Liz Truss, you have somebody who's been chosen by tens of thousands of Tory party members doesn't even command the majority support amongst her own MPs. And like I say, Michael, within three weeks, within three weeks, they did the biggest set of tax cuts in 50 years. Bigger than any budget under Thatcher. And this wasn't even a budget. And there was no OBR. I don't like the OBR, but if you're going to do that, you, you need to play the game, right? So I do actually think there's a part of me that even if I was on the right and I liked Liz Truss and I was an IEA fanboy, I would probably say, why, why did you do that? Why did you rush all of that? Politically, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like, it's like a socialist coming. Imagine if there's a Labour government, Keir Starmer, and let's say he's not totally awful, but he's not great either. And he's, you know, quite melty, but we see rail going to public ownership. We see a little bit of council house building. We see national minimum wage sort of edge up a little bit. He's bad on other stuff, but you know, he's good on some stuff. And then somebody comes in to replace him, uh, uh, another Labour politician. Um, you know, a John McDonnell clone, uh, without his political savvy, because John McDonnell will never do this. And then within the first several weeks and coming into office, they say, right, that's it. We're going to take four or five different industries into public ownership. We're going to double the national minimum wage, and we're going to have a top rate of tax of 99%. Now, you might think they're all good policies. I think actually a lot of that is very good policy. But the point is, I wouldn't endorse that politically because I think it would probably be quite inastute. It would probably not be, it would probably not be in your rational self-interest. You would get smashed by political forces beyond your control very quickly. And politics is about that, right? Politics is about what you can do within a certain set of conditions. You know, it's about necessity. So yes and no, Michael. I think she's been supremely stupid. And it's really right to say, I think, that yeah, this is the end of neoliberalism. Because actually what I think what the best thing to do here was, the best thing, 
wasn't just to roll back on all of the mini budget. Like I said, they've rolled back on two of the four tax cuts. They should have rolled back on all four of them. And actually, if they really wanted to pacify markets, they should have said corporation tax will go to 27%, not 25%. Actually, increase the tax take more than what Rishi Sunak was pledging. I think that would have then pacified quite a lot of sentiment. And you might think, well, why are markets calling for, for more taxes? Well, the reality is Britain has to service its debt. It hasn't got a growing economy. And the idea that you do deficit-funded tax cuts when you're a net importer of energy, food, your industrial base is minimal, and you've seen zero growth for about 14 years per capita, more or less zero growth, people would just think, what the hell are you doing? You know, it's like it's like a 55-year-old having a pack of cigarettes, puck a pie, four pints of lager, and thinking they can mix it with, you know, the creme de la creme of the Premier League. No, you're going to get found out. That's not your level. Uh, yes, Reagan's America could do that in the 80s. Trusses Britain in 2022 cannot. And actually, that is, for me, the, the real lesson here, is that what you saw with Rees Morgan, Britannia Unchained, and all these people, and it fits into the idea of Brexit, was that Britain was effectively Britain of the 19th century. We can, we can champion and advocate free trade and free markets just like this country did in the 19th century. The only difference is, of course, you don't have an empire covering one quarter of the planet's surface, the world's most powerful army. You don't have the fact that London was the central hub of global finance. We were effectively the Saudi Arabia of energy because, of course, we had coal. We were this manufacturing powerhouse. So we were effectively Saudi Arabia, China, and New York all in one country. Britain is that, isn't that country anymore. You might like Britain. You might think it's a great place to live. It ain't that country anymore. But in the minds of Jacob Rees-Mogg and a lot of the people around Liz Truss, it was. And I think that is, is the reality they've smashed up against in the last two, three weeks. This was Keir Starmer's take on Kwarteng's sacking. So it's an interview in The Guardian. And he said, change in personnel at the top of the Tory party is not the change we need. We need a change of government. We are in the absurd situation where we are on the third, fourth prime minister in six years. And within weeks, we have got a prime minister who has the worst reputational ratings of any prime minister well in history. Their party is completely exhausted and clapped out. It has got no ideas. It can't face the future. And it has left the UK in a defensive crouch where we are not facing the challenges of the future because we haven't got a government that could lead us to the future. For the good of the country, we need a general election. Aaron, Keir Starmer calling for a general election. I don't know if you think that's a smart idea or not. I suppose the more interesting question is, is there any mechanism by which we would get one? Any sensible Tory clearly is not going to vote for a general election right now because I think, yes, Liz Trust can fall further. I do think there's a sort of cognitive bias where we say, oh, well, this is the lowest, lowest point. Why? Why is it the lowest point? If, you get, if you're getting 20% in the opinion polls a month after coming to office, who knows? We've never seen this before. Maybe they can go to 10%, right? I mean, this, this already seems outlandish to me. So... I, I don't see. I don't really subscribe to that thinking. However, I, I don't think the Tories would go into a general election with this kind of polling. Surely, they've got two years to, to not do that. Surely, they've got two options here. One is to stick with Truss, and basically, she's sort of puppeteered by the 1922 committee and doesn't do anything. Um, they probably would recover five, ten percent. They might. They might get thirty percent of general election, but I, I don't see how. But they might do. Or they, and I think this is what they will do. They'll let things calm down for the next couple of weeks maybe even a couple of months, and then replace her once the market is calmed. By the way, it might not be like I say, because they've not actually done a proper U-turn on the mini-budget. So the only way we can have a general election is if Conservative MPs agree to a general election. They aren't going to do that. So I don't really see Keir Starmer's point. Unless, of course, Prince Charles, or rather, sorry, King Charles, my apologies, King Charles the woke, uh, unless he says he no longer has confidence in the Prime Minister, plausible, it'll be a constitutional crisis. 
but you, you could see a, a certain set of circumstances where that becomes the case. Maybe people from her own party come to him and, and say that, then maybe. I mean, there was a similar situation to that with, with Chamberlain, obviously, in 1940. Maybe you might get a sort of coalition government. I don't know. There's a lot of eventual, you know, sort of contingencies and eventualities because we're in such strange times. But I don't see how Tory MPs would vote for a general election. They would be, they would be digging their own professional graves, so to speak. Most of them, they'd be reduced to around 100 seats right now. So hard to envisage. It's very difficult to see it happening. Unless there's some sort of like kamikaze thing with sort of 40 Tory MPs who decide they completely want to destroy the Conservative Party for some reason. It does seem hard to imagine. Let's move on. We're now going to talk about the people who do have it within their power, whether or not a general election or happens or whether or not Liz Truss is replaced. Liz Truss's disastrous press conference has led not so much to rumblings as roarings from within the ranks of Tory MPs. Things are not looking good for the beleaguered Prime Minister. Shortly after the press conference, journalists on the Westminster Beat quickly began posting those cries of despair on Twitter. This is from The Sun's Harry Cole. This is from an MP that supported Truss. An embarrassingly robotic performance, I'm not sure the parliamentary party or markets will be reassured or convinced by her single automaton answer to legitimate journalistic questions. Meanwhile, iNews's Paul War posted this on Twitter. Verdict on that car crash presser from a Tory MP who actually supported Trust's leadership campaign. And in quotes, she's a goner, I'm afraid. And then there's a screenshot of someone saying awful on WhatsApp with a sad face. But the obvious worry for the Tories is that they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, they could get rid of Trust and risk facing a general election, which would destroy them. On the other, they could keep Liz Truss and watch the markets continue to spin out of control and their poll ratings plummet. Former Chancellor Philip Hammond turned up to discuss the problem on the BBC's World at One, and he was asked, can Truss survive? I think she can survive. Um, and and the, um, the logic of that is simply that I personally do not believe that the country will tolerate another change of leader without a general election. And I do not believe that Conservative MPs, who are the only group who can remove the Prime Minister, are, are minded to have a general election anytime soon. So I think much as they may be disillusioned with her, I don't think they can remove her without risking an early general election. So the Tories would rather deal with trust one way or another than face the public. And that was a sentiment that keen trust supporter John Redwood expressed too. Because we've just had a big contest about that. A number of very talented people put their names forward. We all had our opportunity to support, argue and cross-examine. And the final vote was very clearly in favour of Liz Truss. And uh, also remember that by the time the members voted by a reasonable majority for Liz Truss, a majority of all the Conservative MPs had also signed up to Liz Truss. So I think all of those of us who did that um, need to remember we did that uh, and give every support and some good advice to the Prime Minister because she's clearly going to need it to get from where she is today uh, to a winning economic policy as soon as possible, which can mm. restore confidence. But not everyone who was behind Truss still has her back. Before the press conference, Tory MP Sir Christopher Chope appeared on Newsnight. He was asked how he would feel if Liz Truss were to U-turn on corporation tax. Here's what he said. She's not going to, and, and I would feel that this was um, a complete a betrayal of all that she believes in. Um, Liz Truss is a calm, considered very... very uh, clever, intelligent person, okay. and she's not going to pursue a policy which was totally inconsistent with her policy of promoting growth 
And one way of promoting growth is by keeping corporation tax low. Sure. Calm considered a very intelligent, clever person. Less than 24 hours later, Chope appeared on Times Radio with a rather different opinion. What do you think about the kind of job that Liz Truss has made of the last month and a bit? Well, I voted for Liz Truss because I supported her policies. And um, I still support what her policies are meant to be, but she hasn't delivered on them. Right, so do you still retain confidence in her? where to go from here, frankly. And and I think that a lot of uh, real conservatives will be in exactly the same uh, dilemma. What 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 do we do now? Because um, basically the, the conservative economic agenda seems to have been trashed. Right. Would you like to see her replaced then? I, I think that's an irrelevance, um, frankly. Really? I, I, She's I, the one I driving because, this because ship I think, into I think the, the damage iceberg. has already been done. Um, it, when Boris Johnson was forced out of office... I, I said that I, I feared that we would rue the day that that had happened. Um, I now um, reg- regret that I've, in a sense, been proved, proved right. And what is happening now is that we are seeing sort of a, a conservative parliamentary party um, out of control. The hyenas are on the hunt. And um, I, I, I'm therefore very pessimistic about how we're going to be able to re- recover the position. Not everyone is making their opinions known so publicly, though, and the most important conversations are probably happening behind closed doors. According to the Times, plots are afoot to force Truss out of her job and replace her with a joint ticket of Rishi Sunak and Penny Mordaunt, who came second and third in the Tory leadership race, respectively. One MP told the Times this, Rishi's people, Penny's people, and the sensible Truss supporters who realise she's a disaster just need to sit down together and work out who the unity candidate is. It's either Rishi as Prime Minister with Penny as his Deputy and Foreign Secretary or Penny as Prime Minister with Rishi as Chancellor. They would promise to lead a government of all the talents and most MPs would fall in behind that. A deal of sorts would be necessary among MPs because everyone seems to be agreed the last thing the Tories need is a full-blown leadership election. But agreement might not seem easy to reach. Sky's Sam Coates posted this screenshot from a Tory WhatsApp group. An MP in the group, we can't tell which one, say, enough emergency repair needed for our party and our country. Step forward, Rishi and Penny, with our support and encouragement in the interests of us all. And then you can see a message from Nadine Doris. She's responding to Crispin Blunt. And she says, followed by a general election. I love you, Crispin. But if you seriously think we can impose another leader without one, that the media and the people would allow that you need a lie down. We may as well embrace dictatorship because it's the most undemocratic proposal imaginable. And as I said, these are the only people who could topple Liz Truss. If they were to, what would be the sequence of events you can imagine as sort of being plausible here? I actually disagree with Nadine Dorries, who is important to say, Michael, say what you like about her, but she did concoct the best attack line against the now Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, when she said that he was the Secretary of State for Health who failed to prepare for the COVID pandemic. You know, she killed his leadership aspirations with that line, you know, with people sort of hectoring her on social media, often with great justification, calling her, you know, not nice names. That was very astute political commentary. I thought, well, there you go, Labour. That's the line you can now use against the inhabitant of uh, number 11 Downing Street. I, I do think that the public would swallow a change in Tory leadership if they said explicitly, it's short term, we've got a really chaotic 12 months ahead, we've really screwed up, we've obviously got war in Russia, rampant inflation, 
not as bad as we were expecting, but still obviously quite bad. This won't be the only winter where that's a problem. There's the next winter too. So we're going to have a caretaker administration for, for 12, 18 months, explicitly call it that. And then we'll go to a general election as, as soon as we think that the markets are assuaged and it won't have a negative spillover for millions of hardworking Britons. I think people would swallow that personally. I personally think that the Tory vote, which they've lost, you know, they've gone now from what, 44, 45% in 2019 to 20%. I think all the people that they've lost, I don't think those people are saying, you know what? Right now with inflation at 10% and energy bills skyrocketing and me looking at my mortgage being five, 600 pounds more expensive than it was four months ago or rent, uh, you know, rampant too, or I'm unable to even find a place in London. Maybe young people do want a general election, right? But actually, I think most people whose votes they've lost since 2019 wouldn't want a general election. I think under normal circumstances, they would. Or for instance, during the Brexit impasse, I think people said, you know, have a general election, sort it out. But I think with these conditions in a cold winter, energy crisis, geopolitical crisis, let's be honest as, as well, Mike, we don't really talk about it enough. Prospect of a nuclear confrontation in, 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 in Ukraine, it's really plausible, really plausible. I find it strange that we take seriously catastrophic climate change, but not the specter of nuclear war. There you go. I, I can see why, I can see how they could sell it to the public. And I think actually if they did sell it to the public, I think they'd be polling a downside better than they are right now. It's not like they're on 35 in the polls. And if we do, oh my God, I'm going to lose my seat. Right now, 300 odd Tory MPs are losing their seats. If I was them, I'd do it quickly and get the pain over and done with. Like you say, Penny Mordaunt, figurehead at number 10. Rishi Sunak pulling the strings at number 11. Will they do that? I don't know. Look, these people aren't that smart because look where they've ended up multiple times. Theresa May, Boris Johnson, uh, Penny Mordaunt, Liz Truss. And by the way, actually, I should say as well, Michael, look, the idea that Penny Mordaunt comes into office and, you know, all of a sudden supremely, uh, you know, professional and everything runs smoothly. They said that about Theresa May. They said that about Liz Truss. They couldn't have been more wrong. And I've heard some quite alarming stories about Penny Mordaunt personally, who's just not a very capable politician. There is not the caliber of personnel at the top of the Conservative Party. I, I cannot understand. I cannot fathom why they didn't vote for, for Rishi Sunak as leader. I know the members are kind of batshit, but he was their one hope of selling a message of stability to the, to the electorate in 2024, and they've lost that chance, I think. But damage limitation, personally, I think Mordaunt Sunak is their best, least worst option today. Yeah, and I do think, you know, Sunak more than Mordaunt, because uh, I remember at the beginning of her leadership campaign, there was this impression, oh, she seems kind of competent. She can kind of talk in a way that people can understand. Um, she looks the part. And then within about a week, it became apparent that actually she was really, really superficial. She performed quite badly in the debates. And then everyone was briefing left, right and centre that this woman has, has never been very good at any of the jobs she's ever done. And it was very believable because actually that came across in the kind of interviews and, and the debates she was giving. So this this sort of reimagining of, of Penny Morden as the potential competent prime minister we never had, I don't think that will stand up to reality very well. Straight on. Kwarteng's sacking means he suffers the indignity of being the second shortest serving chancellor in history. He lasted only 38 days. There is only one chancellor who had a shorter tenure and he died in office. You also notice that three of the five shortest serving chancellors served under the Tories since 2019. And that's a sign of how unstable British politics has become. A fact circulating on Twitter today was that in the 19 years from 1997 to 2016, all of five people 
served as prime minister or chancellor. So they were Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Alistair Darling, David Cameron, and George Osborne. So five in 19 years. In the six years since, we've already had three prime ministers and six chancellors. So, you know, completely unprecedented. Aaron, I suppose, you know, in a way, this is a sign of the incompetence that reigns within the Conservative Party. But I think on a broader level, this is about the instability of of politics, people are saying, since Brexit, you can have all sorts of explanations as to why it's happening. But what do you think is going on here? Why is British politics so much more unstable than it has ever been? And will it be stable again? I don't think it will get particularly stable very soon, no, because the fundamentals of the British economy over the last 30 years, 40 years really, are, are in free fall. Uh, we've lost North Sea oil, so we're now a net energy importer. That has huge consequences for our balance of trade payments, for the fact we, whether or not we can heat our own homes, for people's bills potentially. If you bring in public ownership, a left government would have wanted to do that. Of course, you can't do that now. We could have had a wealth fund like Norway, National Sovereign Wealth Fund. So yeah, not being a, a net exporter of energy. I think departing the European Union, Michael, is so enormous. Because what's interesting is I think Basically, from the early 1980s all the way through to, to today, you had a cast of politicians in this country who didn't really think about immigration policy. And I mean the actual policy, right? I don't mean being racist, right? I mean the actual nuts and bolts of how an independent nation state administers an immigration policy within international parameters, international treaties. Same on trade policy, same on industrial policy. Same on energy policy. I think so much outsourcing was done to the European Union when we were members of the European Union. And I think, interestingly, that's exposed a lot of politicians as being fundamentally incapable of administering a nation state of 65 million people in the middle of a crisis outside the European Union without that safety net, without outsourcing thinking on the big questions. You might not like some of the thinking and some of the conclusions that came back from the European Commission and you know the, the, the European Parliament, but it was there. And there was standardization. You can imitate best practice from, you know, 26, 27 other member states. That's gone. So I think purely by virtue of the fundamentals, low growth, energy importer, global kind of trends here, we're not going to see um, inflation staying low for a long time. Why? Because really from 1990, we were importing low inflation from China. The Chinese working class were making things incredibly cheaply, and they were exporting low inflation to the rest of the world. Amazing speech, Michael, this week, given by um, Josep Borrell, vice president of the European Commission. He said that the Chinese working class over the last 30 years have done more to keep inflation low than all the world's central banks put together. Remarkable statement. Remarkable statement. It would have been remarkable two years ago for an academic to say it. Now it's somebody at the pinnacle of power at the European Commission. So I think all those variables put together, plus Britain not in the European Union, plus having this useless political class, I think it's going to be a very turbulent period. Very turbulent. And I think if, if you suspect it'll be over purely because we'll have a Labour government in charge, I would reply, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, and as somebody who grew up in the 1990s, it really does put into sharp focus how quiet that period was, how calm politically that period was, how economically passive it was. You know, economists call it the great moderation because you had relatively high growth, very low inflation, low industrial action. This is in the US and in, in Europe and the United Kingdom. And you just basically had a Goldilocks period. That's gone. But again, the counter argument is maybe that was the, um, that was the, aberration. And actually, going back to something that looks like the 70s, or the 30s, or the 20s, 
actually, or the 1840s, you know, there are plenty of precedents for sustained political economic volatility of the time, of the kind we're presently kind of within. Uh, and so, no, uh, this idea of going back to normal, I think, is a fundamental misnomer. Let's talk briefly about the new chancellor, so Jeremy Hunt, um, as we've mentioned already. Um, now, what you'll be, what, what you'll hear from the political journalist Jeremy Hunt, he voted for Rishi Sunak. He's a Remainer from a different wing of the party to Liz Truss. I think the most important thing to know about Jeremy Hunt is he was health secretary from 2012 to 2018. So he has more responsibility than anyone for the crisis we are currently seeing in the NHS, which is due to understaffing. He oversaw that understaffing, by the way. And as Aaron has already said, he was also the health secretary who failed to prepare for the pandemic. So that's why I don't think it's necessarily a genius political move to give him a heavy promotion. We are going to be talking a lot about the NHS this winter. And when I say we, I don't just mean we at Navarra Media, I mean the whole country. So I, I don't necessarily think he's a safe pair of hands. Some, some seem to think he is. Um, but let's see what other people are saying about him. Tory MP Steve Bryan worked with Jeremy Hunt when he was health secretary. Bryan appeared on Radio 4's PM programme where he was asked this. The party is split, isn't it? You, you've got supporters of Liz Truss now who are really angry that she's ditched the policy she stood on. You've got her detractors saying she's as bad as we warned you about. Uh, yet how do you bring the party together? You can't, can you? Well, we have to. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody, detractor or otherwise, should want this government to succeed. And what I know about Jeremy, he won't be licking his lips at the prospect of becoming chancellor at this time, but this is a moment to be there for the country. And in my experience of him, it's always been country first. And he will see that as his as his job right now. Uh, and that is the job that he's been asked to do. He will do it very well. I think you should see him... Maybe you should see Liz Truss as the chairman and Jeremy Hunt as the chief executive. And I think he'll be a very effective chief executive. And, you know, like a new football manager coming in. Um, at the end of the day, the supporters are happy when the team's winning. So to be clear, the chairman, the chairman of a company, that tends to be you know a bit more of a notional role. They sort of stand there, they might chair the board. But it's the CEO, the chief executive. They're the one who has the real power. They're the one who makes the day-to-day decisions. So what's being suggested there is that essentially... You know, Liz Truss is going to become a symbolic figure and it's going to be Jeremy Hunt who's pulling the strings. You know, so it's one way to avoid a leadership election whilst, you know, getting rid of, of Liz Truss from policymaking who most of the Tory party now seem to think is a complete liability. Aaron, what do you make of that idea that it's now Jeremy Hunt who will be in charge, who will be pulling the strings? And what do you think he will bring to the, to the British economy over the next, well, however long he, he manages to stay in that job? Jeremy Hunt is one of those people where it's the complete triumph of style over content. He's he's nice looking. He's 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 nice looking in a really inoffensive way, you know, clean shaven, smoothie chops. Doesn't get angry. Doesn't get upset. Nice, calm, posh. He was a management consultant. Did PPE at Oxford. A bit like Cameron, you know. He's a little Cameronite mini me. And I think in their in their dire situation, a lot of Tories think oh, this, this guy can get us out of a hole. Well, remember. David Cameron put you in a pretty big hole in 2016 by calling the Brexit referendum. And he also did a terrible job administering the economy from 2010 with George Osborne. So I think it, it shows a real paucity in the Conservative Party, not just of personnel, but ideas. Because they're falling back to somebody like Jeremy Hunt, who's a complete non-entity. I think Jeremy Hunt as a Tory in the early 70s would have been an Edward Heath man. He would have been a centrist, right? I think he would have been um, a wet if Martha, if Margaret Thatcher had encountered him 
in the mid-1970s, late 1970s, early 1980s. He may have been a labor man after the Second World War. I don't really think he believes in very much. I think he's a good social climber. I think he's moderately intelligent. And I think effectively, he's one of those people who just believes the orthodoxy of the day. And in 2010, it was austerity. And today, it's something else. In 10 years' time, it'll be something else again. Hopefully, something a lot more progressive and not as utterly destructive for ordinary working-class people. So I don't think it tells us very much. But with somebody like that, Michael, I guess the upside is, for the Tory party, you have effectively the bond market running the government, right? When you get Jeremy Hunt in, in this set of circumstances running the government, he's the, he's the anti-Quasi-Quarteng. Right? He's the anti-Liz Truss. He's not going to be a heterodox thinker. He's going to do exactly as he's told by the, by the IMF. He'll do exactly as he's told by the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, and the, you know, the, uh, the Institute of Directors. They will just, they will instruct him how to govern the country. And, and to return to that kind of Leninist adage that, you know, government is effectively, you know, the state is the administration of affairs, the interests of the ruling class. I mean, okay, you, you can believe that or not believe it. But I think, wow, you know, maybe Jeremy Hunt as the kind of Frank Underwood figure running a government from the chancellor's office, basically in league with private enterprise, is probably as close as you're going to get to that. Jeremy Hunt, what has he done? Destroyed the NHS, stood to be leader twice and lost. You know, he's, it's not someone who should inspire great faith. Although, as you say, I think he is someone who's not going to put up any resistance to the markets. And that's why, presumably, he will calm them because it's essentially um, putting those guys in control. Let's go to our next story. Liz Truss currently has the worst approval ratings of any prime minister in history. But this caller to the Jeremy Vine show for we should still give her a chance. Do you know, she hasn't been a prime minister for even two months yet. And all I've heard is criticism. Why the hell don't you give her a chance to make go good? You're always on about it and moaning about it. Even her own MPs haven't backed her up. I'm not going to say to you that I wanted her to be the Prime Minister. I wasn't too keen myself. But she is the Prime Minister. Get used to it. You've got to back her up. Paula, the reason... It took Thatcher two years. The reason she's come under criticism, Paula, is because she crashed the pound, she caused the run on government bonds, she caused the pension funds to nearly collapse, prompting emergency intervention uh, from the Bank of England. Uh, she, She provoked an increase in people's mortgage payments, so people now will have to pay hundreds of pounds extra a month because of her policies. And she's talking about slashing her, her own ministers, in-work benefits for millions of low-paid workers. The fact she's only been in office for a short period of time and the fact she's managed to be so catastrophic is, I totally accept, pretty astonishing. But that's what's happened, Paula. If you don't want to be criticised, don't crash the economy with ludicrous extreme policies that the British people have not voted for. She didn't put them to the British people. She didn't even put them to Tory members. She didn't say she was going to give £45 billion of uncosted tax cuts to rich people in the leadership election. So, Paula, I'm not going to get used to as Prime Minister because I didn't vote for her. Neither did you, unless you're a Tory member, so maybe you did. Well, you said you didn't. So, I don't understand, in a democracy, why you don't accept that we can criticise a Prime Minister, not least when she plunges our economy into crisis and forces millions of people Mm. to pay more in their mortgage payments. If you can't criticise a Prime Minister for that, what the hell can you criticise a Prime Minister for? Paula, would you tell him to take a breath? I, Paula, I'm sorry, Paula, I've just comprehensively answered what know, you said, Paula. I know, you don't give anybody else a chance to talk. I did. Just give somebody a chance to talk, just for a change. Go for it, Paula, just go for quiet. it. Go for it. Go on, Paula, what did you My like God, 
You're one of those that no matter what she does, she could stand on her head and and God knows what she could do anything, but you just would not give her a chance. Why don't you just wait and see and see whether she will come through? If she doesn't come through, I'll be with you all the way, 100%. But for God's sake, give her a chance, all of you. Paula, She's not I, been I, in long enough to I, do I, anything. Paula, I'm not asking for a moon on a stick. I'm just asking for a prime minister who doesn't introduce extreme policies no one voted for, like cutting taxes. We know that. For the rich. We already and know Paula, that. Thought, we know I what thought, she's stop done. Stop shouting! Give I her thought, a chance. Paula, I give thought, her a chance. Just give her a chance Paula, to I, put this right. I thought we didn't like people interrupting each other, Paula. I, I well, just, yes, but you constantly shut up. You don't ever give anybody a chance. I, I, Paula, at all. Paula, I just want a prime minister who doesn't crash the economy, crash the pound, no, and force people to increase their mortgage payments. We've heard it before. We've Thank heard you. for everything that you've said before. Yeah. Please. Paula, Paula. It's still a mystery to me why Liz Truss standing on her head would do anything to change the mind of even the most open-minded commentator. But there we are. Um, the caller, in any case, um, is not particularly representative of the general public. So this is a poll um, from Savannah Comres. Seven in ten people say Liz Truss cannot regain the trust of the British people. Um, so 71% um, say Liz Truss cannot gain the trust. And only 16% think she might be able to regain the trust of the British public. So um, Owen's position there was more representative of the public at large. Aaron, what did you make of that exchange? As I say, I don't think many people are saying it's too soon to make any sort of definitive judgments about Liz Truss, are they? I think many people are tired of drama in British politics. They're tired of the drama. It's been nonstop since 2016. I think that's a reason to get rid of Liz Truss. I don't think that's a reason to wait for Liz Truss. Personally, I can see why you're, you're, you're so annoyed and just bored of constant bad stories coming through the media about our political class being utterly useless. I get that. It is very boring and upsetting. And often it can, you know, hit your back pocket. And that's the reason to get rid of her. Give her a chance. Well, what? If that's what you're doing in your first month, it's like somebody, you invite them into the hat, into your house, they have some dinner and they set your kitchen on fire. And they say, sorry, my goodness. And you say, okay, no problem. I'll give you a chance. No, you tell them to leave because. They're going to torch the rest of the bloody building. Very, very strange mindset, contrarian. One thing I would have loved to have seen there, Michael, is for Owen or the host to ask that woman, do you pay a mortgage? She sounded older. I presume maybe her mortgage has paid off. She's got her pension probably, you know, um, triple lock. So the, the pension rises in line with inflation. Yeah, maybe she, ha she has the luxury of not really worrying too much and she can wait for Liz Trust to get things right. Most people don't. Uh, and like you say, the, the statistics are very clear on this. Even Conservative Party members don't act Liz Truss. Even her colleagues in Parliament don't really have any confidence in her. So I think it's a very strange mindset to say, give her a chance, give her time. In the short period of time she's had, she couldn't have done worse. And just to repeat, Michael, it was a mini budget, not a budget. And yet we had the biggest tax cuts in 50 years, 45 billion pounds of deficit funded tax cuts but the richest people in this country, and she got punished for it by the markets. Why would you give her another chance? It's the biggest unforced political error, I think, in, in domestic British political history. I'm not talking about foreign policy. Domestic British political history. My God, you want to you wanna have to do it again? You want to give her a second and third and fourth chance to screw up so monumentally? No, thank you. That mortgage point is really important because, I mean, renters aren't going to vote Tory anyway because the status quo has been screwing us over for a decade, if not longer. 
people with a mortgage aren't going to vote Tory or aren't going to give Liz Truss a chance because she has massively increased the costs they have to pay every month, at least when they fall out of their um, fixed rate mortgages. So the only people who could possibly still be on side, who could possibly still think that the sensible, stable, conservative, small c conservative thing to do is to keep her are people who have their mortgages completely paid off, people who own their homes outright. So I think you're right. That would have been a great question to pose to that caller. Liz Truss's mini-budget crashed the pound, hiked mortgage costs, and it's now brought down her chancellor. But who's really to blame for the wacky ideas that detonated a bomb under her premiership? Well, at the time of the mini-budget, there were a number of think tanks more than willing to take credit. The Centre for Policy Studies said this, Great to see so many CPS policies included in today's announcement by the Chancellor. And then they cite cancelling corporation tax rise, the stamp duty cut, low tax investment zones and reversing the national insurance rise. The Adam Smith Institute for their part said this, We are incredibly encouraged to see so many pro-growth policies announced by Kwasi Kwarteng in the mini-budget, many of which we have advocated for over many years. And then the Institute for Economic Affairs, or at least their director, said this, had this to say, if this was the Chancellor's mini-budget, I look forward to the maxi-budget. That is a statement which has aged very well. Of course, there will be um, no maxi-budget from Kwasi Kwarteng because the mini-budget tanked his career. The IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs, have come under particular focus because a number of its former staffers are in close contact with Truss and Kwarteng or are physically in their top teams or were in Kwarteng's top team. Tim Montgomery, the founder of the Conservative Home website, went so far as to say this of the mini-budget. A massive moment for the IEA, he says. They've been advocating for these policies for years. They've incubated Truss and Kwarteng during their early years as MPs. Britain is now their laboratory. The laboratory has now blown up. So, given the chaos these think tanks have caused, many have begun to question what interests might lie behind their disastrous ideas. And this week one of their spokespeople was taken to task on LBC. So you want planning reform. Um, who's funding your research on planning reform? I have no idea, but we do have a Who Funds You page if anyone is interested in looking. Does it, does it give much detail? It gives a little bit of detail, yes. What you need to know. What do you think we need to know? I don't know, really. What would you like to know? Well, I, Would you like a list of every single well, donor from most, uh, ten from the beginning in 1955? No, but most think tanks do provide lists of the donors they get each year. And Actually, your, not your, really. Yours doesn't. Actually, not really, including uh, left-wing think tanks as well. Like who? Um, well, I don't think Oxfam, for example, as a charity, a think tank? A charity we're an educational charity. charity. So um, on that basis, I don't. You believe can't really liken the IA to Oxfam, can you? We're an educational charity. There are different types of charity, of course, with different aims and different ways of uh, making a difference. Adam, um, what would you like to know? Education charity. Well, you know, the, the agenda that Liz Truss has been pushing in her in her mini budget, you know, lower, shrink the size of the state and um, and uh, fund in order to get big tax cuts. That's something an agenda that organisations like the Institute for Economic Affairs have been pushing for, for years, including at Conservative Party conference where they host a lot of events with ministers and where they boast that Liz Truss is, has been one of their most regular attendees at. And so I think it does matter who funds these organisations because often they appear, people from these organisations appear you know, quite rightly on, on programmes like this. And there isn't the, the question of who is actually funding the, the positions that funding the, the research. Is your accusation, is your accusation with me sitting on this panel that somehow what I am saying is paid for? 
Because well, that is incredible. It's no surprise that someone who believes in uh, free markets in general might wish to work for a think tank that also um, believes yes, in that. And it's no, it's no coincidence that a politician like Liz Truss might be more interested in the Institute of Economic Affairs than she would be with a left-wing think tank. Emily, if you're not paid to say what you're saying, that only makes it more embarrassing. My ideas crashed the economy. And more than that, we did it all for free. No one told us to say what we said. We crashed the economy of our own accord. Let's look at some more of that exchange. That's how things work. It's and the reason why we protect, we, we protect, we protect the privacy so our of judgment. our donors because places like the Byline Times would go after them, right? You yeah, know, people are allowed their privacy. It's a right. It's interesting if we look at Byline Times' shareholders, they're not so squeaky clean, are they, either? Max... We paid for Mosley, by our, is it? No, no. We are paid for Son by our subscribers. A, We're uh, entirely funded by our subscribers. Fascist. We're entirely funded for paid for by our subscribers. And and only people can 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 look at who our shareholders are and people can and we put our subscribers on the front of our of our newspaper. People can't look at the IAEA and see who funds them. Can't they can see, see a breakdown. They can see a breakdown. Some can't, of our donors there is no real breakdown. On the website. Say say where they're the, from. Say listeners by suggesting there is. Nobody can go on, on your website and see who funds your organisation. You can you see can't. where where proportionately the, the spending comes from, uh, the donations come from. What does you that mean? Proportionally, what does that mean? Can can people go on your website? Fundamentally, and see who funds it? we protect the privacy of our donors. So they can't. They can look at the proportion, and also some of our donors do express that but, openly. But you- So Emily Carver wasn't particularly persuasive there, but nonetheless, I did take her advice and I went to the Who Funds Us section of the IEA website. This is what you find there. You can see a 2018 breakdown of fundraising for UK activity. You can see that 14% comes from large businesses, 37% comes from wealthy individuals, and we got a little bit of money from events and conferences. Book sales get 4% and foundations and trusts give them 28%. So you can see most of it, the majority is coming from large businesses and wealthy individuals. And it's not really much use if we're talking about vested interests and what conflicts of interest they might have to just know that rich people fund them. We need to know which rich people. We need to know what interests these wealthy people and these businesses have. Otherwise, there's nothing transparent about that. Oh yeah, we're very transparent. We tell you, we're funded by rich people. Which rich people? Aaron, what's your take on the IEA's takeover of Britain? We've all been living in their laboratory for the past five weeks, I suppose, although I suppose that the Queen's death interrupted it, maybe the past three weeks. It hasn't gone very well, has it? It's been an absolute disaster class, Michael, much like that interview or that panel <laughs> conversation. And it was really funny when she said to uh, Adam Bienkov, well, actually, you're funded by Moslin. You're funded by, well, yeah, you know that because that data's there in the public domain. Mosley has given money, I believe, to Byline in the past. Not Oswald Mosley, Max Mosley, his son, who's since passed away. And you can find that disagreeable. Great. And credit to Byline Times, they tell you about it. So I think that's, that's quite significant. It is a problem and you have to follow the money in these things. And if you think it's, it's not a serious issue, then you don't really understand the intersection of, of media and politics. What's bizarre about the IEA and Taxpayers Alliance and all those organizations is when you, you know, when you meet them on television, you're like, these are really odd people. You know, mm, it's, it seems really like strange. A, a really strange people. But then, and you think, so long as they're all, you know, closeted up in, in, in Tufton Street, which is where Taxpayers Alliance, IEA, all of these, Adam Smith Institute, all they are, 
like, fine, we've got these. It's annoying that they get invited onto Question Time and they get invited onto all of these mainstream programs, given that they're, you know, dark funded organizations and are always advocating mad stuff. Like, that was annoying enough. Now, they're all in Downing Street. So all of these, like, weirdos that you used to bump into in TV studios, they are now literally running the country. And guess what happened? We put them in charge of the country and everything collapsed within the space of three weeks. So I do think if there was ever a time for them to reveal who, who's funding them, it would be now. I was going to be a bit sort of Trumpish and say, let's, let's put them in jail. We don't necessarily have to put them in jail. <laughs> we should tax them more because these rich people have too much money to fund mad ideas here. There, everywhere. Why don't we, we, should, we, we should put people in jail for paying for people to advocate shitty ideas. I don't think. But I'm sure many of these people could be put in jail for other reasons. I don't know. Not that I'm imputing. That well, I think Michael, Michael, let's. Okay, no. First of all, they've not committed any criminal activity, and uh, we're not we're not <laughs> suggesting that in the slightest. But serious, you know, a serious point here. Um, I was being flippant. But participating in in politics and trying to shape public opinion and trying to influence affairs of state, which affect the lives of tens of millions of people. Austerity killed, now we know, 300,000 people. We had 300,000 excess deaths because of austerity. Policy ideas matter. The idea that you can play that game for the highest possible stakes and you're not going to tell people who's funding you is absurd. It is absurd. And if you're going to do that, uh, and if you're not going to disclose who is allowing you to continue to operate as an organization, you should not be on the BBC or Channel 4 or LBC, or ITV, or Sky News, or anywhere, or anywhere. That's my, that's my perspective on this, because like I say, you're playing at the highest possible stakes at the top table when it comes to British politics. And if you're going to do that, and you're entitled to, by the way, wealthy people are, are entitled to participate in politics and lobby in their interests. Of course they are. We should know they're doing it, rather than this sort of Machiavellian deception. Oh, the IAS, we're very accountable. Uh, we're funded by rich people. We won't tell you which ones. Come on. And I, I think, by the way, Michael, we've talked about the IA. We mock them and the, you know, the Adam Smith Institute and the Taxpayers Alliance and all the other, the panoply of organizations at Tufton Street, 55 Tufton Street. Yes, we criticize them and we lambast them, rightly so. We should also do the same, by the way, to the BBC and Sky News and ITV. Don't platform these people until they are open and accountable about who funds them. And if you continue to do this, in spite of them not disclosing that information, then you are also part of the problem. Yeah, I didn't. I saw a tweet today, which I haven't checked, but it was from someone I, I trusted, sort of saying the BBC, after the resignation of Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss's U-turn, went to an expert from the Institute of Economic Affairs without, you know, challenging them on, isn't it all of your ideas which screwed over the UK economy and all of your ex-colleagues who've now gone to number 10 and number 11. So I do think they get a very easy ride and they get shed loads of invites, considering, you know, we always thought their ideas were wacky. Their ideas have now been proven to be wacky. Shady organizations who don't tell us who's funding them, and yet still they're constantly plastered um, all over our TV screens. Let's go on to our next story. The protest group Just Stop Oil want the government to commit to ending all new licenses for fossil fuel extraction. And they got attention for their cause like this. <laughs> What is worth more, art or life? Is it worth more than food, worth more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting 
or the protection of our planet and people. The cost of living crisis is part of the cost of oil crisis. Fuel is unaffordable to millions of cold, hungry families. They can't even afford to heat a tin of soup. That was tomato soup being thrown on a Van Gogh painting, which was, we should say, covered in glass, so no damage was done. Apparently a little bit of damage was done to the, the picture frame, and that's obviously not as priceless as the picture. The stunt was part of Just Stop Oil's 14th day of action in Westminster, and the protests have been timed to coincide with a new round of oil and gas licenses being granted by the UK government. Aaron, um, this stunt has got lots of attention, created lots of discourse on social media. What's your take on the soupy attack on Van Gogh? I find it strange, personally. However, it has garnered attention. You know, we posted this to our TikTok. I think it's got like six and a half million views or something. So look, people are talking about it. We live in an attention economy, so getting people's attention is is hugely useful if you want to achieve certain political objectives. The problem is, I, I think sometimes we all we all make the mistake of attracting the wrong kind of attention. Are you being an advocate for your cause? Are you are you impressing upon people a set of positive ideas about changing things? I feel like this isn't necessarily that. I don't think it was that bad. I'm not going to condemn it or something. I think the kind of, I think the best example of that not working, of kind of really thoughtless, stupid direct action was when you had two guys climb on top of a train. I think it was the Jubilee line, early, early hours, Extinction Rebellion, early hours of a weekday, people commuting to work. And actually you're impacting thousands of people in terms of working class people, men and women, all backgrounds, students, whatever, just trying to get about their day and you're stopping them. And that was really stupid and counterproductive. I don't think this is that bad, but I think, you know, there is an important word in, in political activism, which is strategy, and it matters. I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm not going to be sitting here on YouTube condemning them and saying, oh, you're so unstrategic because they got a lot of attention. But I do feel like we're in a phase now of direct action where sort of any kind of intervention is any kind of attention grabbing is positive and to be welcomed. I don't think that's the case. I really don't think that's the case. I think direct action against fossil fuel companies, closing down circulation where you're affecting the 1%, creating cleavages in society where you're highlighting inequality, hugely powerful. One of the best examples of that, you can cut, who were closing down businesses, high street businesses in the early 2010s, 2010, 2011, highlighting the fact that they weren't paying their tax. Hugely successful, very popular, educates the public at large. If you smash up the front door of BP or Shell, I'm not advocating that on YouTube. I'm just saying I can, I can comprehend that. In this instance, I don't. Finally, this binary of art or heating people. I mean, that's, that's not a binary. We, we, we can do both. You know, you can conserve a Van Gogh painting and, and have, you know, affordable energy for everybody and socialized housing. We, we have had societies that have done that, by the way. So I thought it was a strange binary. Uh, you know, maybe you could say, well, the wealthy, they care about art. This grabs their attention. But actually, increasingly, you're finding art institutions not having um, a, a commercial relationship with fossil fuel companies. So it wasn't to highlight that either, because I think in this instance of this institution that there wasn't that relationship. So I, I don't really get it. But we're talking about it on YouTube. Millions of people have watched it today. So maybe I'm wrong, Michael. I'm always open to that possibility. What do you think? I mean, I don't have a particular, particularly certain view on this one, but I think I am actually quite sympathetic to it. And the reason I say that is because, you know, people, we often talk when it comes to, to activism that you respect people who have made a sacrifice towards their cause, you know, 
And we often talk about that when it comes to sort of like going to prison or spending 24 hours in a jail cell or losing a day's pay from work, you know, if people are going on strike. And I do think that here a real sacrifice was made, which is that these two young women were willing to have the whole country think they're idiots, right? And I, I, I'm, I'm being serious here. I'm being completely sincere. I, I, I'm impressed by that. And the reason I am impressed by that is because I do think it doesn't matter if the public like your action. What matters is if the public care about or are interested in your cause. And what I've always found quite impressive about Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain and all these things where, you know, I, I can see how it's pissing off a lot of people. I wouldn't do it. My, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it myself personally, because I'd feel a bit awkward about stopping people going about their business or whatever. But the thing, I, and they didn't do that here, by the way, I, I, I feel people thinking that the painting is crossing the line, whereas stopping people getting to work wasn't crossing the line. I find that quite bizarre. This to me seems less disruptive of ordinary people. If there wasn't a bit of glass in front of the painting, it would be a different story, but there was, which to me means it's just, you know, it's not a particularly offensive action at all. Um, but going back to my key point, what I find impressive about Extinction Rebellion and, and Just a Paul and all of these is the number of people who say, of course, I'm in favor of their ends, but just not the means they try and achieve it. And actually, that is a real shift from, say, four years ago. You know, of, co of, of course, we shouldn't be drilling for new oil fields, but I wouldn't go about it like that. If you've got people saying that, you're winning, right? So if, if you've got people on talk radio, they're all calling in saying, oh, of course, I, I think their ends are valid, but I don't care about their means. Well, great. That's exactly what you want them to be saying. Because as a campaigner, you don't care. You, you shouldn't care if people like you. You should care if people are... Well, I mean, obviously, you're, you're not going to get convinced by that, but you might get convinced by the conversation which is prompted by that. And so I, I do have a fair amount of, of, of respect for it. And to be honest, I'm, I, I feel less uncomplicated about this throwing of the soup on the Van Gogh than I do about, you know, stopping the roads and stopping people getting to work because, you know, that is really disrupting the lives of ordinary people, people going to work, et cetera, people picking up their kids. I, I think that's more, much more morally complicated than this, which is why I find it a bit bizarre that this is the one where so many people on social media have been saying, oh, look, the line has really been crossed now. I think Andrew Marr tweeted, now they have lost me. You know, as in sort of like, I used to be sympathetic to these climate activists, but now they have thrown soup on a Van Gogh painting, which was covered in glass anyway. Now they have lost me. Now I'm going to go buy an oil car instead of converting to an electric one. I find it, you know, I find it a little bit overblown. And going to your BP and Shell thing of sort of hammering the BP and hammering the Shell, there are lots of actions which make more sense. You know, you don't have to explain why they would have smashed the BP or smashed the shell. But I think that would have been talked about much less. The reason actions like this get a lot of airtime on LBC, get a lot of airtime on talk radio, get a lot of airtime on, on, on BBC is because it's an interesting debate. Oh, this was interesting. Is this wrong? Is this right? You can sort of debate something which people understand, which is the wrongness or the rightness of throwing soup on a painting. And even if only 10% of the time is taken up by someone talking about oil, that's more than you would have had someone talking about oil and climate change than if the soup had not been thrown on the paint. So I think I could be persuaded otherwise, especially you know, if there's some data involved. But I think as it stands, I am pro the soup Van Gogh action, given that there was glass in front of it. Aaron? I mean, look, Michael, I read some comments that I'm authoritarian, Aaron Bastani. What about, what about the poll tax? I support the poll tax rights. It was very effective. The point is the poll tax riots were part of a much wider movement of non-payment, people going to prison. I think it's kind of flippant and frivolous to compare that to, to this action, which, by the way, may work. We agree there. I'm not saying it's wrong. I condemn it. I'm not saying that in the slightest. But what 
I do worry about is that people now think that activism is purely about attention. And I think the most impressive part of that action for me was actually what the young woman said. Very lucid, very persuasive. And I feel like if you're trying to build a mass movement of activism, direct action, like the poll tax, by the way, then you do need, or you can cut another example, or strike action. You do need forms of protest and dissent, which can bring millions of people in. For instance, you know, school strikes for climate action, I think was a great example of that. So I'm not suggesting this is bad. I'm not suggesting it's detrimental. I'm not condemning them. But I do worry there's a tendency, there's a turn to viewing this kind of activism as somehow, you know, the highest form of activism. No, persuasion is hugely, hugely important. And this fixation with spectacle hasn't really done much in the 21st century, right? We, we, we've seen it for a long time, hasn't done much. I could be wrong. I hope I am. We could talk all evening about this. I just want to highlight one comment story that really speaks to me. Dalian Haynes, why did the guy sound super sassy when he called for security? That was actually the first thing I noticed when I watched it. goes, security? Security? Shouldn't someone be here? They're throwing soup on the Van Gogh. I found that very entertaining anyway. But let's wrap up there. Have a fantastic weekend. I was going to say hopefully nothing too big happens before Monday, but actually keep the chaos going, I say. Aaron, it's been a pleasure as always. I love spending my Friday evenings with you. Michael, I love these shows. Long may it continue. I believe I'm back on Monday hosting. I'll miss you, but uh, I'll try my best to fill in for the Alpha and Omega, Michael Walker. <laughs> yeah, I won't be here on Monday, but Aaron will be. So come back. Tisky Sour, Monday, 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.